It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne. When was the last time you were stressed? I'd give you a little time to think about it, but it's probably pretty recent. You may have said that you are stressed right now. I'm actually pretty relaxed and chill. This has been a good morning. Um, but, you know, like most of you, I seem to live a life where I'm swimming in an ocean of perpetual stress. I've got all the same life stressors that everybody else has. I'm also an entrepreneur, and making a living without a net is a constant source of stress. You know, you don't have uh, the solidity of a, of a hundred-year-old corporation that you're working for. Although, nowadays, none of us really have that much employment security. And of course, I also live with multiple sclerosis. And that is the gift that keeps on giving stress for me. And most of you listening have some kind of chronic illness, love someone with a chronic illness, work in a profession that cares for people with chronic illnesses, and you realize that stress, which I will define more tightly as distress as we go on in this podcast, is part of the deal. And when we're diagnosed, we're not really told that this constant source of distress is something that naturally follows from that diagnosis. So last week we did an episode called Fear Isn't What You Think. And this episode is a sort of companion to that. Because, as we'll see, that fear response is something that often goes along with distress. So the fear response, the stress response, those are intimately tied to one another. We've also done an episode on grief. And that's right there in the mix with this. We've got episodes on anxiety and trauma and pain coming up. And those are all mixed in with this same set of experiences. And they're so important that, you know, by the way, these are like chapters three and four of my book. So it's massively important, stress is massively important, because we all realize we're living in a massively stressful age. And we're probably more stressed because our stress response doesn't fit our current environment. As we know, that stress response, which is often interpreted as fear, was great for getting away from a saber-toothed tiger but not so good for so many of the stressors that we face day in and day out. It's probably not 
the best response to deal with your annoyingly stressful coworker in the next cubicle. Since chronic illness is an inescapable part of our lives, this is a lasting and repeated source of stress and trauma. Now, bad stress makes everyone's life worse. But it is more so for chronic illness. Our systems are already distressed as a baseline. This is just table stakes for getting up and, and trying to get out into the world each day. So, remember the acute stress response that we talked about in the fear episode. Now, this is what ramps up our bodies and our brains for this immediate reaction when we perceive fear. And there are two major parts of our central nervous systems at work here. There's the sympathoadrenal medullary, the SAM axis, and there's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis. Now, these are autonomic. They're largely outside our conscious control. So they're deep, old parts of our central nervous system that are adapted to those particular kinds of distresses. And this is our sympathetic nervous system preparing us for an acute response to an emergent threat. We can't necessarily control that initial reaction, but we can learn to influence and reframe how we deal with it. Now, as we do in this podcast, we're not going to focus on the biology of it. So I just threw out the SAM axis and the HPA axis there so that you can look them up if you're more interested. Instead, we're focusing on the experience of living with stress because experience is where we live. Experience is in what we think and feel and perceive and behave and how we relate to other people. And that is an essential part of stress. So stress is how we are experiencing our reaction to a perceived stressor. And a stressor is just something in the world that you judge to be potentially challenging, right? It may be that your annoying co-worker is not intrinsically stressful. He's just stressful for you, right? You're making a judgment about that particular person. We make judgments all the time. That's a little different than physical stressors. Okay, so physical stressors, so if you're lifting a heavy weight, for example, then those stressors are what we call prepotent. That is, you know, there's a certain amount of resistance that's inherent in it, and stress is just part of it. But again, there's still a judgment that we're making. If you don't exercise a lot, then you may judge the same weight as being very stressful. And then someone else comes along who's all pumped up and ripped, right? And, and they don't find it stressful. So 
Stress is relative. Stress is a personal judgment. And a lot of these judgments are ones that we are making pre-consciously. So we don't even notice that we're making the judgment. So we tend to believe that the stressfulness of something is out there in the world inherent in that object that we're saying is stressful. But it's not. Stress is about how much resistance we're getting. We're having to overcome the demand that we're having to overcome to achieve whatever action that is. So, stressors are out there in the world. Stress is your response to those things. And of course, one of our major stressors is right there in our bodies with us, and we can't get away. It is there all the time. So it becomes really crucial that we learn to deal with negative stress. Because sometimes we can't get away from it. And I will say as an aside here that this is the second reason I went back to skydiving. I realized I'm living with a stressor and I have to get better at dealing with stress. Because I have all of the academic knowledge about it running around in my head. But the knowledge isn't the same as the understanding of living the experience and learning to cope with the experience. So I purposefully, last year, I jumped out of a plane 370 times. Every time that dials your stress response up to 11. And you have to deal with that successfully or you die. <laughs> so this is maybe a little bit of an extreme approach to exposure therapy, but it worked for me. So now we have that acute stress response, and then we have the general adaptation syndrome, right? So that acute stress response was that first part of it, right? We're, we're having that pause we're, we're detecting a potential threat or challenge. There's a little pause where we're making some kind of judgment about it. Is this something I'm going to have to deal with or not? And if we do, then, you know, there's all those potential ways that we can deal with it. And we talked about that in the fear episode. And then, after we have that initial response, that pause to determine whether this is a real challenge or threat... Then, it's preparing our system for that immediate action. So it's that physiological, psychological reaction that we often perceive as fear. And then we spring into action. We resist. We work against the challenge until we succeed or we can no longer resist. It's one of the two. We're either going to succeed or fail. And we keep up that resistance as long as we can, as long as we feel that it's necessary. So now you're really seeing why 
This acute stress response and this general adaptation syndrome can be so problematic when we're dealing with chronic illness. Because we're probably not getting better. And if we keep fighting against it all the time, now don't get me wrong, sometimes we've got to fight against it. But if we keep fighting against it all the time, rather than working with it, then we're increasing our stress and we're exhausting ourselves. So that's that phase three of that general adaptation syndrome. When we reach the limits of our capacity, we fail. Resistance fails. We're exhausted. And we're going to pick up with that exhaustion and what it means on the other side of this next break. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. Imagine that you're holding a little weight out to your side. So you've got a, a small weight, maybe it's only two pounds, maybe it's a pound, in your hand, and you hold your arm straight out parallel with the floor. And you just hold it there. And even if it's a tiny little weight, you will start feeling the effects of the stress, your resistance against that challenge, right? And no matter how strong you are, no matter how much power and endurance you have, eventually your arm will fall to your side. You can't hold it up any longer. Now, if that were a five-pound weight, you wouldn't be able to resist it as long. If that were a 10-pound weight, it would be even quicker still. If it were half a pound, well, maybe you could hold it out for longer, right? Whether you succeed and how long you succeed depends on the capacity you can bring to the challenge in front of you. And if you can bring more capacity than challenge, you're going to succeed. But we need to learn to recognize what that general adaptation syndrome feels like when we experience it. Because we know we're becoming fatigued and our performance is slipping. You can deliver far more capacity the first time you do it than the 20th in a row. And we all know that, but we forget it day to day. We forget it in the middle of that action. So 
If you've never done that exercise with a weight, it, I would suggest you actually do it so that you can really focus on what the experience feels like as your resistance is ebbing. It's a really important signal that we give ourselves that often we ignore. And then we end up really failing. And we don't want to do that. So if it's a real challenge that's in front of us, we're uncertain. I mean, fundamentally, we don't know that we're going to succeed or fail. That's what a real challenge is. The outcome is ambiguous. We don't know how it will end. And that uncertainty is stressful. It induces stress. Surprise, then, is inherent in stress. If we don't know what the outcome is going to be, then there is a certain level of stress that's associated with it. We can also have stress when we are absolutely convinced that the outcome is going to be negative, that it's not going to be what we want. But while some physical challenges are inherently stressful, most stressors that we face might be social or cognitive or cultural or, you know, we'll get into some of the options here in a minute. And whether they are stressful or not often depends on how we frame them. So what do I mean by framing a stressor? So we can go the negative route if we, if we are convinced or at least suspect that there's going to be a negative outcome then we're into the realm of fear, right? And we've got that whole freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, fright, faint set of responses. It's way more than fight or flight. And we're in that realm of fear. And, and here we have negative stress, fear, pain, grief, trauma, anxiety, all of those things being related to one another because they're all drawing on that same acute stress response and, and they're all a result of a negative outcome potentially to that general adaptation syndrome as we're trying to overcome the challenge in front of us. And that negative stress is called distress. But there's also positive stress. Positive stress is called eustress. E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. -E eustress. In classic Greek, the E-U, the epsilon, you know, in front, that, that's good. That means good. So it's good stress. It's a, one of those Greco-Latinate technical terms that we have. So positive stress is related to surprise, joy, pleasure, triumph, 
We were really challenged and we overcame, right? They're all good things. In fact, some of the best experiences that we have involve eustress, good stress. And again, most of the time, we don't know going into it whether it's going to be good stress or bad stress. We can't tell whether this experience is going to be fundamentally good or bad until we've had the experience. I mean, there, you know, occasionally we know that the, the odds are pretty good, but your annoying co-worker Phil next, in the cubicle next door may surprise you sometimes. Positive stress is also associated with humor. Humor fundamentally has a surprise or transgresses some kind of boundary. There's a setup to the humor, right? And then you're like, ooh, is this going to go really badly? Or is it surprising in a good way? And we find it funny. Now, not everybody has the same boundaries, right? And so something may be funny to you, but it's not funny to me. Because... You find a humorous or gentle or thoughtful surprise on the other side and somebody else is offended. You know, I was raised as an only child. My siblings took it pretty hard. But I'm bumping. Life is short. If you have a crush on someone, walk right up to them and then a little past them and just keep on going because it's probably not worth it. Why can't you tell a kleptomaniac a joke? Because they always take things seriously. Two cows are in a field. One says, Moo. The other looks over and says, That's what I was going to say. What do you call a talking turtle? fictional. (laughs) A proton walks into a bar. No one noticed because protons are tiny and they're everywhere. What do you call a medical student that graduated last in their class? Doctor. Just remember, half of all people are below average. Some of you might have gotten a mild chuckle out of some of these. Most of you probably just think I'm a total loser with no sense of humor. And that's okay. I didn't think most of them were that funny, but a couple of them were kind of funny. But that's humor. There's a a surprising twist. There's something different that you weren't expecting. There's a slight uptick in stress at the beginning because you're like, oh, what's this setup going to be for, right? What's the setup? What's going to happen? And then if it doesn't crash and burn, if it's something that's delightfully surprising, oh, that's humor. That's joy. So what I'm telling you here is some of the things that we value the most about being human have stress. 
right in the heart of them. There is good stress and there is bad stress. And we can understand which is which. through a little idea I call the capacity-demand ratio, okay? So, if there's more capacity than is demanded of you at the time, then you're going to succeed. And even if it's very stressful, it's still going to end up being eustress because you succeeded. And on the other side, you're going to be grateful for the experience. You're going to be proud of yourself. Now, this ratio is going to be really important to understanding how you're going to deal with stress. And we will dig into this on the other side of this break. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life So, there's good stress and bad stress. And it's really important to understand this. Because as we'll get into, this idea of avoiding stress altogether is just silly. And we wouldn't want to live a life with no stress. So, how are all of these related to one another? At any given time, you've got a certain amount of capacity to get things done. And there's a certain demand in front of you. In other words, if your capacity is more than that demand, you're going to succeed. If it's less than the demand in front of you, you're going to fail. And your edges move. The demand around you is always changing because of whatever it is we're trying to do in the moment. Some parts of our day, we're taking it easy and there's not a lot that we're trying to accomplish. Other parts of the day, we are facing some more difficult task. And our capacity that we can deliver changes throughout the day. If we're tired, if we're distracted, if we are a host of other things, then our capacity will lower, right? And then maybe we've had a good lunch and a little nap and we've gotten through that little downtime when our biorhythms kind of crash in the middle of the afternoon and we got our second win for the day and our capacity is up again. So... 
Whatever you can deliver at this moment, if it is slightly better than the demand in front of you, that is your edge. That is your edge right now. And your edge is the best you can deliver in this moment. So what that means is it could be a task that you have succeeded at a thousand times in the past. But if for some reason your capacity isn't quite up to it in this moment, that thing that you've always succeeded at, you will fail at. I mean, this is why if you can run a four-minute mile, you don't do that all the time. You run your best on those occasions when you're competing and they're timing you. And you may be able to set a record, right? There's this perverse notion in our culture that everybody has to give 110% all the time. That's stupid. If you can get away with, with giving 30% to something, if it only deserves that, do that. Do your best at the things that you need to do your best at, that you really want to do your best at, because fundamentally you can't do your best at everything all the time. Sorry. Actually, not sorry. So if you have a lot of capacity, so your capacity bar is really high, and the demand in front of you is really low, and there's that big gap between them, that's boredom. When we are like that, that's what we experience as boredom. We've got a lot of capacity that's not being discharged, and there's, there's not much demand around us. And that can be stressful in and of itself. So when we've got this really big mismatch, that's a kind of stress distress and we're trying you know we'll that's when we get into trouble right we come up with all kinds of interesting ideas to keep ourselves amused or entertained or engaged when we're really bored when the demand is a little higher that's the area of habit okay so those are our habituated actions those are things that are well practiced we don't even really need to think about them to accomplish them. When the demand gets a little higher than that, now this is in the area where we have to think about it, but we do it really well and it's smooth and you can call this area practiced. This part of the ratio is practiced. And then we have a little more demand and now we're engaged. So now we're, we're you know, pretty much in the moment and we're thinking it through and and it it feels like work it looks like work to us but it's not distressing at all and then now as the demand level gets close to what our capacity is and we're really in the zone and we're clicking along and everything seems to be working right and and we're we're really proud of how we're operating. This is really cool. That's a flow experience. And so many of our best human experiences are flow experiences. They're when we are stressed, 
we're challenged, we have a demand that we can just accomplish, right? And that's flow. Now, we get to the point where the demand edges up just a little more, and it's more than we can deliver. And that's where we fail. And then the demand inches up even further. And that's where we're overwhelmed. And the demand inches up further. And there's a big gap between your capacity and what the task in front of you demands of you. And that's where we become traumatized. One of the challenges of understanding this when we're faced with it in our real life is that we have a lot of different capacities and that every task, everything, that every experience that we have has to pass through several gates. So we've got, right, you know, biological and physiological capacities. We've got cognitive capacity, how much we can think about it. We've got an evaluative, and emotional capacity. Because we're making judgments. We're making judgments about the annoying guy in the next cubicle. We're making judgments about everything. Like, dislike, should, shouldn't, happy, sad, joyous, satisfying, unsatisfying, etc. Right? We're making all these judgments. And if we have to spend a lot of time near something that we're judging pretty negatively, that requires more of us to do it. There are cultural gates. So in order to get something done, uh, maybe you have to transgress a cultural boundary. And you know that there's going to be resistance there. There's a physical environment that may be more or less conducive to you getting done what you need to get done. And my point here is, then it's always social. Even if you're doing something by yourself, it's always social. And it's social for two reasons. One, we have internalized what we call notional others. So we all are walking around with a sense of what they will think about it, right? Well, we don't even know who they are, but... <laughs> But they are judgmental, and they are snitty. And that is something that we have to do, even if it's something we do by ourselves. We wonder, well, what if somebody finds out about this? You know, or how are they going to feel about it, right? It's also social in another way, because each of us is a society of mind. Each of us has not a whole bunch of fully developed personalities, but we've got facets to our personality. We've got many sides. And they make different judgments. They have different goals. They don't necessarily agree with one another. They don't even necessarily like one another. Some parts of you don't like other parts of you. And we don't even want to claim all of them. So fundamentally... There's these social sides to getting anything done. Now, here's the trick. Sometimes you have 
the cognitive ability to get this done at this point. But, and we all know this, living with chronic illness, your body fails you at that moment. And it's really frustrating, right? Because you know how to do this thing. You've done this thing a million times in the past. Or maybe the environment is, is what's getting in your way with this particular time. We all know that there are different kinds of hard. And there are different kinds of challenge. And those challenges happen at different points. So your edges, you don't just have one edge that you're trying to get through. You have all these implicit edges that you're trying to get through. And so an activity can feel stressful, even if it's something you've done a thousand times before, because now maybe you're doing it with a big audience and you feel that performance anxiety. So understand where the source of the stress is coming from. Understand that we can manipulate some of these conditions. We can reframe how we're thinking about it. And we can turn distress into eustress. But we all know that we want to have some stress in our lives because we don't want to be bored all the time. We want a feeling of accomplishment and meaning in our lives. So as you think about what the sources of good and bad stress are in our lives, we'll take a quick break, we'll come back, and we'll talk about what we can do to have good experiences with stress. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. We live in a culture that gives us the advice that we should be fearless. It also advises us to avoid stress. Both of those are patently impossible. And when we are faced with that advice and we find out through our own experience that it's impossible to be fearless and it's impossible to avoid stress, we can feel as if we've failed somehow. Oh, I shouldn't have fear. Oh, I shouldn't be stressed about anything. Well, that's just silly. And it's, it is harmfully wrong. I've already gone into why fear can be a good thing. We just don't want it to steer the boat all the time. But we should now understand that, that avoiding stress is wrong too because there are all these good, valuable, 
indispensable, fundamentally, wonderfully human things about good stress. All that joy and all that learning and all that discovery and all that stuff where we find meaning and happiness and humor in our lives. The difference between joy and pain is they're right next to one another. The opposite of joy is not pain. The opposite of both of them is boredom and disengagement and feeling ineffective in the world. Success and failure are a hair's breadth apart. And if if we don't understand that, if we use our chronic illnesses as an excuse to completely withdraw from the world, then we're taking ourselves away from all those potentially wonderful experiences as well. And that is why we should care about this. That's why we need to have a better understanding of stress and use stress and distress, its good and, and negative forms, so that we can better frame what's happening to us. So, how do we deal with this stress? First, we have the right expectations and assessment of what's going on. We need to have a, a real, honest assessment of what capacities we can deliver in this moment. And sometimes that's tough, because sometimes we're not feeling well, and we can't deliver what we would like to be able to deliver. But we have to have those expectations corrected, because if we don't, we're going to unintentionally fail when we don't need to. We have to have the right assessment of the demand that's in front of us. If we overestimate the demand, then, oh, that's going to be a letdown, isn't it? If we underestimate the demand, which, you know, totally is okay sometimes. If we underestimate the demand, then, wow, we're in for a surprise. We also have to know which stressors we must deal with, and which we can avoid. Some of us, avoidance is our favorite strategy. And it's really easy to get into that flight approach to potentially fearful, distressing things. But... Most of the time, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. We have overestimated the demand, and we've not correctly understood what the consequences of avoiding this are going to really be. We can also reframe the stressor as a challenge. It's not something to fear. It's a challenge. So, now... I don't fear the open door of an airplane three miles up. And it's like, eh. You know, I will, I will literally snooze 
on the comfy seat in the tail of the plane until we get up there and somebody shouts two minutes and then I will perk up, I'll check my gear, light goes on, I open the door, check the spot, and out I go. And it's not a big deal. But that's something that you learn because it is a wholly unnatural activity. You have to learn it. You have to be exposed to it. You have to do it time and time again and succeed and realize that, oh, this seems to be a really big challenge in front of me, but I got this. So if we reframe the stressor and we practice good stress with positive results, then we're more likely to develop the habit of a positive response when the stressor is facing us. We also need to learn to time and space our stressors whenever possible. Remember that the last stage of that general adaptation syndrome is we want to be able to stop our reaction before we're exhausted. We're either going to succeed or we're going to back off because the challenge is too much and we're going to allow ourselves time to recover and recuperate. We've got to re-engage that parasympathetic nervous system, right? That rest and digest part of our nervous system so that we can recover and face the next stressor successfully. So if you know, you know, this means that we need to be more conscious of the way we organize our lives whenever we can. And in some cases, that means that we have to give up some spontaneity in our lives. Or like me, I plan for spontaneity. (laughs) Which seems weird, but I, I really do. And the reason is... I know that there's going to be a certain amount of stress, even if it's good stress, associated with some of those spontaneous fun activities. So I need the time to recover on the other side. That means that we have to monitor and understand ourselves. Full stop. Many of us don't want to examine ourselves too closely. But you have to, because your body and your mind are sending you signals all the time. They're sending you signals about, oh, this works, I like this, I don't like this, I want to get away from that, etc. And you have to learn to pick up on those signals so that you can make better decisions, not just in the moment, but for your future self. Because your future self is the person who's going to have to deal with the consequences of the decisions you make right now. You don't have to live with those consequences. Your future self does. And this also explains why things like, you know, this understanding stress, this explains why things like meditation, sleep, nutrition, exercise, recreation, why those work in the way that they do. When we meditate, we're lowering our demand and we're allowing ourselves to recover some of the cognitive and emotional and 
resources that we need. When we sleep, we're combating fatigue and rebuilding all those systems in our body that need to recover from the wear and tear of the day, and that raises our capacity. When we have the right nutrition, we're increasing our capacity because we're giving our body the fuel that it needs to put forth these efforts. When we exercise, we're building capacity in our system. We're building the strength and the endurance and the flexibility and the balance in our system so that our bodies don't become the bottleneck in what it is we're trying to do. Recreation works. Taking time off, breaking, right? We need to do that. It's not just having fun. This is self-care, right? This is important because... We're allowing ourselves to relax and recuperate and recover. When we understand the importance of this stress response in our lives and how it relates to those capacity demand gates, a whole lot of of why we succeed and fail and why things make us happy and others make us sad and yada, yada, yada. That all starts making sense when we do this. So I encourage you to start looking at the world in this way. And ignore that advice that says be fearless or avoid stress because it's just wrong. In fact... We can stress ourselves out by always trying to avoid stressful situations. We can create anxiety we don't need. We can overestimate the demand and underestimate our capacity by ruminating and catastrophizing and overthinking this too much. Some stress is inevitable. And some stress is good. And some stress is always associated with some of the best things in life. So understanding stress and understanding how you react to it and how you accommodate it is a good and necessary part of living well. We can't control all the stressors that come our way. We just can't. But we can influence and reframe our responses. And I have got so much more to say about this topic, but this is a great place to leave off. So I encourage you to challenge yourself by doing something that is you stressful, that is a good stressor today. Learn something Do something and make a good, pleasurable, meaningful experience out of the day. So go forth, be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, Find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, 
yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.